thank you. Uh, we are a bit delayed, but uh, we decided to not to uh, cut the, the, the coffee break because it's going to be a, a long day and it's better that we are fresh and, and, and ready for discussion. Now we start the, the, the second session and, uh, and as you could see in the, in the program, and it was advanced by the by the commissioner. Um, you know, it, it follows the the, 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 the usual uh, analytical uh, strategy. I mean, first, uh, what made the UETS possible? Now, uh, how has the UETS worked? And then, in the last session, we we want to to see you know how uh, things uh, can be and or should be in the future, right? So um, this is, of course, uh, the topic of this session is, is, is crucial. Um, we have many different angles here. We have um, the discussion on the effectiveness, on the cost efficiency, on the distributional issues, on the competitiveness, on interactions with other energy and, and climate policy tools, uh, EU level, national, member state level, etc. Right. So many, many uh, possible topics, and uh, for that we have uh, uh, also. Um, um, a varied or a heterogeneous uh, panel to to try to to answer as as many as possible of these of these questions. Um, that's what I expect from this session. I mean, a session uh, mainly positive, uh, positive session. Uh, uh, not 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 as a positive uh, message, but uh, um, in terms of positive versus normative, right? And. Uh, and, and therefore, I, I, would I would like just to, 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 to focus on, on, on the qualitative and, and quantitative uh, message that, that, that we can get from this still not too long period, but uh, which can allow us to, to, to assess what's going on uh, with the system. Uh, many of the academics who are attending this, this, this meeting have been working or are working in, this, in these issues. And, Indeed, the, the, the climate policy unit now, FSR Climate, is mainly interested in, this, in these issues and on the, on the um, analysis, uh, exposed analysis of the, of the experience. So, so we'll be really uh, interested in, in hearing you know, this debate and, and uh, also contributing to this debate. On the logistics, I will follow more or less uh, Brigitte's uh, strategy, so I will briefly uh, give the uh, short introduction to each, uh, to each panelist and then give the floor five minutes please I will try to, to stick to, to this to, so that you know we can have uh, enough time for the debate because I mean this is uh, I would say as important or more even than, 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 than short speeches by, by, by panelists. So um, I, I first uh, give the floor to, to Danny Ellerman. You all know him. Um, Danny was the, the director, the former director of the Climate Policy Research Unit, and, and he, he was also um, working in MIT uh, before coming here. So now he's retired and wants to be retired. So thank you, thank you, Danny, for, for being here, and the floor is yours. Okay, thank you, Xavier. So the question we're asked to address in this panel is, how has it worked? And it'd be no surprise to you that my answer to this is that it has worked well. Uh, it's, as we celebrate this 10th anniversary, it has stood the test of time, not a super long period, but still a lot longer than many people would have thought. 
And I think more importantly, as I perceive it, it is firmly institutionalized in the European economic and political uh, sort of environment. It's very hard for me to see how it would disappear. It just uh, to put the political coalition, the supermajority, to repeal it strikes me as there. So it is institutionalized. It's a feature. I would emphasize two particular points, I think, in, that I think of, of achievements and how it has worked. The first is that it is the only single price in the common European economic space. So whether you're in Bucharest, London, Lisbon, or Warsaw, the price is the same. I have a standing bet to anyone that I'll give a very nice dinner, will host a very nice dinner for anyone who can identify another single price in the European Union. Uh, the nearest comparable is, of course, the price of the euro. But, and that's a very important price. But it applies to only, what, 17, 18, I can't keep track now. But anyway, out of the 28, it's only partial. And I can't resist noting that it's a price that has considerably more influence on the competitiveness of European industry than the price of carbon. Now, why is a single price important? It's this achievement important because it is important because it sets the conditions for least cost attainment or least cost compliance that the previous panel has presented as so important to the arguments for it. Uh, so this has been achieved. There is, there is a single price. Whether all actors are taking full advantage of the opportunities for least cost attainment is another issue. One very deserving of study, but it's, it's another issue, but the conditions are there. And if that condition is not there, you're not going to have least cost uh, attainment. And you would not have the single price or the possibility of least cost achievement of the goals that have been set if other instruments such as conventional regulation have been chosen or a carbon tax, which for all the discussion of universal, uniform carbon taxes, uh, our experience shows that there are a lot of exceptions uh, that get drilled into them uh, you know, as opposed to the cap and trade. The second point I would make, and I think it's important to bear in mind, that the EU ETS is the only multinational trading system that exists. So our theory of cap and trade, and our theory of emissions trading is, is developed in a context of a single unitary state, which of course can enforce and do everything. And so and how would it work when you have, let's say if you think of the Kyoto vision, as I would call it, how would it work? Can it work in a multinational context? And a lot of people's answer to that is no. It might work. It could work in Norway. It could work in the UK, wherever. But it'd never work, you know, among a whole disparate numbers. And what the EU ETS has done has provided a proof of concept, a proof of feasibility for multinational emissions trading. And I think in making this point, I have to emphasize a lot that the EU is not a strong, unitary, single state, notwithstanding the Eurosceptic criticism uh, to, to the contrary. So you have 28 sovereign nations who have agreed among themselves that there would be common rules in certain areas of endeavor that they agree. And I hope I don't offend any of the members of the European Parliament here in saying that although they're called directives, and it's the 
sort of reigning legislation of the European Union, it looks to an outsider an awful lot like multinational agreements. And I think that's a useful way to think about it and how a directive comes about, that it is in many ways, it's a, it's a multinational governmental negotiation and that's what it's gonna be uh, on the global stage. So why is this proof of feasibility of a multinational trading system important? It is because emissions trading is the most, remains, I would argue, the most promising path towards an effective global regime. And there must be a global regime. I mean, what, whatever Europe does is very important, but it's not sufficient in terms of what must be the global system. And it's hard to imagine the, the effective global regime that's not gonna have a, have a part of trading. Uh, so I think I would argue what, how has it worked? It has shown these 10 years have shown not only how to create a multinational system, and there are many lessons there, but also how to sustain it. And the new challenge is how do you extend this system beyond the European club? And I use the word club for benefit. I think the great advantage that the European Union had wasn't that they were all agreed on climate change and it wasn't that they were enchanted with the beauty of emissions trading, but it was that there was an infrastructure of coordination and working together on problems that was pre-existing and there were pre-existing club benefits. So what was far, whatever this disgruntlement, Carlo and I and several other people in this group worked on an exercise at one time looking at how, how allocation took place. And it was very evident there were many countries which are very unhappy with the allocation rules and what they had to do. But in the end, it was the benefits of belonging to the European Union that really prevailed. So those benefits, of course, cannot extend beyond Europe, but the same type of linking of other issues, of other considerations that lead people, it isn't being persuaded of the beauty of emissions trading or the importance of climate change, those are all important considerations, but it's also these other things that count uh, that lead to that. And I think for that, uh, we should all be internally indebted to the European Union emission trading system for proving the feasibility of a multinational trading system. Thank you. Thank you, Denny. Um, now we have a Stig uh, Sjolset, who is head of carbon analysis at Thomson Reuters Point Carbon. Stig. Thank you, Xavier. Has the UTS worked? As you said, that's the, that's the simple and straightforward question we've been asked to address in this session. Um, it's a simple question, yet I think we're going to have very different answers uh, in this panel and around this table. And the reason for that, <clears throat> the way I see it, is, is mainly because you assess it according to different criteria. There are a number of different criteria you can assess the UTS against. So what I have done, sort of in the spirit of the 10-year anniversary, is to go back and look at the intentions of the lawmaker at the time where the current framework was adopted. So back in 2008 and 2009, when we put in place the targets um, and the, and the framework that we have until 2020. And there are actually three pretty clear intentions um, that is coming out uh, of those regulations. So, so three pretty clear objectives that the UTS was designed to achieve. <clears throat> the first one, uh, and of course this is the, the you know, period between phase and phase, the, the change between phase one and phase two. So the first objective was to improve the functioning of the system in a very practical sense. So to have uh, sound um, MRV um, requirements, um, you know, um, 
enforcement, um, all sort of the, the practical workings of a functional market should be put in place. That was one key objective. I think it's easy to conclude that that has been achieved. I mean, obviously, we had uh, some glitches in registries and other things also after 2008. But in general, the nuts and bolts of a functioning carbon market is very much in place. Um, a lot of lessons learned during uh, also after 2008, a lot of incremental and larger improvements uh, led by the very competent team in the European Commission. So, you know, on the first point, I think, you know, it's, it's not controversial to say that those, that objective has been delivered. The second and most uh, important objective um, was that the EU ETS should contribute to the overall achievement of the EU reduction targets. So contribute to meet those targets. Again, this is, I mean, this is the most obvious no-brainer. The EU will meet, or did meet its reduction targets for 2008 to 12, and it's going to meet the reduction target for 2020. Um, the 20% reduction will likely be achieved already now in 2015, five years ahead of time. So the overall reduction target has been delivered for a number of reasons. Part of, that, part of it will be related to climate energy policies. Um, it's difficult to estimate or to isolate the fact of the EU ETS, uh, but those who have tried, for example, MIT, end up with estimates between 200 and 500 million tons reduced only because of the EU ETS. There are similar numbers out there. It's, it's not too easy, but most of those who try conclude that the UTS has contrib contributed to significant emission reductions alongside other climate energy policies and of course the general economy. So the third objective um, was to put in place a price signal that would facilitate um, investment in low carbon technologies and a transition to a low carbon economy in Europe. And this is when it gets more tricky. Um, the Commission itself has often sort of discussed the risk of high carbon lock-in uh, due to sustained periods of low carbon prices. So this is, this is obviously a concern. I mean, you know, among the institutions, uh, among the market players, you know, if there is a low carbon price and no one expects that to increase in the future, you will obviously postpone making the needed investment. Um, at the same time, I think it was mentioned by a number of people in, in the first session today, emissions trading, I think, more than any other instrument has contributed to putting climate policies and awareness around abatement and the cost of emitting, um, getting that into boardrooms across Europe, into all the major companies, all the major sectors. And we actually see that we have a running 10-year survey in Point Carbon where we ask people uh, in the market to what extent has the carbon price or influenced your investment decisions. And we see that most people say that this is a, a decisive or important factor, one of the important factors they take into account when they make their investment decisions. So also in this regard, I think that, you know, even though we had low prices in periods, um, the UTS has to at least to some extent achieve that objective. So, you know, to conclude, um, if you take these three core objectives that I could read out of the initial legislation. I think you could, at least two of half of them have been met, um, which I think is a pretty good achievement. Um, I would also add, perhaps, that maybe the system hasn't been tested really yet um, against some of the objectives, for example, meeting the cap or meeting the reduction targets. It has, you know, even without the UTS, 
the EU would likely met those reduction targets for different reasons. So maybe the real test of the system will be when, you know, the EUTS will have to deliver substantial, substantial reductions over a number of years, over a longer period. Um, and, you know, what will then happen? Will the, will the system be able to deliver that, uh, you know, to stick to the targets, to stick to the long-term plan? And actually, um, also, you know, when the going gets tough, um, deliver the required reduction. So maybe we have to, you know, meet in for the 20th or 25th anniversary uh, of the market to assess whether, whether it will work also under uh, those conditions. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Stig. Um, now, Guy, Guy Turner, uh, he's CEO of Trove Research uh, Limited, uh, but he's a well-known analyst in the energy and environmental sector. Okay. Thank you, and, and thank you for, for inviting me. Usually at these events, I'm regarded as a veteran of the carbon market, but um, in the present company, I still consider myself somewhat of a newbie. Um, um, so the question really is not, has the EWTS worked? The question that was put on this session is, how has the EWTS worked? Which is a slightly different context. So I, I, I want to sort of comment on two or three points. Um, on the first thing that someone, the first criteria that someone would usually judge the, the um, EWTS against would be emissions uh, reductions. Um, and on that point, I, I disagree slightly with um, Stig in that my very simple analysis would suggest that the EWTS has virtually uh, no effect so far on the long-term emissions profile of Europe. The emissions since 2008, between 2008 and 2014, have come down by 23% from the power sector. Industrial emissions have remained pretty flat across the board. Power consumption in the same time has come down by 5%, and I don't think um, anyone would argue with the, um, the reasons for that contraction in, in the economy and improvements in energy efficiency. You can't attribute that to the UETS. From the thermal generation sector, um, the vast majority of emissions have come down due to the penetration of renewables. And that, again, given the cost uh, subsidy that required by renewables is not justifiable by the price, the relatively modest price uplift you get in wholesale and retail power prices um, by cost pass-through um, of the carbon price. Um, so the eight, that suggests that the EUETS has had a relatively trivial effect on the emissions profile in the power sector. But to pose that question as a criteria against to, to judge the UETS is actually a false question. I would suggest that the UETS has never set out to achieve emission reductions. The principal objective of the UETS was to reduce emissions at least cost. So it's an economic policy. The emissions reductions could well have been achieved as they were by other regulatory instruments, renewables, or indeed um, direct regulation on the power sector. And on the cost side, although one may lament the decline in the power price, I would say that was entire validation of the theoretical underpinning of the instrument. Um, the net drawdown on resources in the European economy has actually been very, very little. The auction revenues have been recycled back to central governments, which have been used for a variety of purposes. The only net resource cost of the UETS to date, because there has been relatively minor um, effect on capital investment decisions in the energy sector, has been on funding the salaries of myself, um, Benedict, and a few other traders and verifiers. Um, 
And that's hardly material in the context of the overall European economy. The more important effect that the EWTS has had so far, and I agree with Stig, that in effect we are still in the pilot phase. It has not been called into action yet. Because of the um, downward effect on emissions for other reasons, it's not been tested. It was tested in 2008 when prices rose to 30 euros a tonne. Um, and it's actually a salutary lesson that there was an awful lot of pushback at that time. So we have been in a limbo period since 2009, um, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in phase four, because that is when the rubber will hit the road and the instrument will really be tested. But its most important um, contributions to date, I think, have been more subtle. And firstly, its role as a deterrent that underpins the other policies that um, contribute to European climate and energy policy. It is unambiguous in its strictness um, and compliance. It, in one fell swoop, took aspirational, woolly European policy, long-term policy targets, and translated those through to not just national level obligations, which some can argue can be achieved or non-achieved, but it placed a legally binding obligation at a corporate level, which was unavoidable. And that, even though the targets have been um, achieved for other reasons, that provides a very important signaling effect to, the corporate, to corporate life. I'm reminded in 2009, RWE set out a strategy to reduce its carbon intensity of generation by 50% up to 2020. That had very little to do with the carbon price that was prevalent in the market at the moment. It was a response to the long-term trajectory of European climate and energy policy. And anything that can contribute to the certainty of that policy will push investments in the right direction. We also did a survey at the end of 2009, just before COP, of 20 European power companies. And we asked them the same question that Stig said, will, does the UETS affect your investment decisions? Most of them said yes. Um, I said, how many carbon price scenarios do you run? They'd say somewhere between two and four. I said, was any of, how many of those had a zero carbon price scenario? Virtually none. The most revealing question was, if the EU ETS was repealed, do you think another instrument would be put in place to achieve the same ends? Most said yes. So the EU ETS has most power as a policy instrument as part of the overall package and as the principal deterrent and cornerstone of a long-term climate and energy policy. And is that which will drive long-term changes in capital expenditure, which will change the structure of the energy industry. Not a bit of tweaking of coal-fired power generation versus gas-fired power stations on an intra-year intra basis. It's the capital, the mobility of capital that has the most profound effect on long-term emissions. Um, its, mark, its behavioral effect also is, is difficult to measure. But Yvonne will remember this, when we in 2010 went round Europe in 10 European cities and held emissions trading simulations to hundreds of people at a time. This wasn't Jana electronic trading scheme, this was open outcry. And we had politicians, we had business people, we had financiers in the room. And we uh, set up this structure where people, companies would be created and targets could be achieved via trading. Initially the response was somewhat muted and it was skeptical. 
By round four, there was nearly fights breaking out. The motivation to earn money from reducing emissions, not just to achieve your compliance, but to make extra money for your company was quite um, astounding. And that is unique to this particular instrument. The insider company, the motivation to make money out of doing something that is good is, is only attributable to this instrument. As a final comment, I'd say that it's very easy to become complacent and forgetful of what is already around you. Like a long-term marriage, you sort of take your partner for granted. And as a thought experiment, I would just ask you to pause for one moment and think what European climate and energy policy would be like today without the EWTS. Would we have a tax? I think probably not. What would the world look like? How would we communicate externally outside Europe? Um, and how would the certainty of direction be articulated without that binding cap, even though it um, has been sort of undermined a little bit, but the long-term signal and what, what effect would that have? Thank you. Good. And now, Franz Josef Schaffhausen, who is the Director General of the Department for Climate Change Policy, European and International Policy in the German federal government. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I would like to share some uh, of the uh, rich experiences we made during the last decades, and uh, some people call me like Guy uh, Dino of the uh, climate change policy because I'm working on climate change since, well, more or less 30 years. And um, first of all, um, what has been my first uh, uh, contact to uh, Joss? I met him in uh, 1983 when there have been a conference in uh, Strasbourg. And uh, the, the aim of that conference has been the internalization of ec external effects not in the field of uh, climate change, but on environmental policy. And we discussed that on the basis of the polluted space principle and the precautionary principle. And we had some, we had some instruments which uh, have been discussed there that has been the, uh, taxes and uh, charges, but also emissions trading but also subsidies, how to, to manage subsidies and how to remove subsidies from, uh, from uh, environmental harmful uh, processes to others. And uh, at that time, some people were saying, well, uh, voluntary commitments, uh, these are also uh, kind of uh, economic instruments. I would be a little bit cautious on that because we had those voluntary commitments in Germany uh, in uh, 1995 and it delivers not more than uh, business as usual. So the question is which instrument should be used. Uh, at that time we discussed, and that was mentioned this morning, we discussed on the basis of the uh, the, uh, of the negotiations in the US on a new clean air policy, which was called uh, emissions trading, netting, bubbling, banking, uh, and offsetting. We discussed in Germany whether we shouldn't use such instruments in the field of clean air policy, water management, and waste policy. At that time, we had that uh, conflict with, uh, with the other uh, colleagues which have been responsible for uh, command and control. Uh, policy in Germany and uh, we uh, have been not successful to implement such 
measures uh, in Germany. We stick to uh, large uh, firing, uh, uh, large combustion uh, ordinance in Germany dealing with uh, SO2 and NOx and dust and had no chance to uh, implement uh, economic market-based uh, instruments. So it seems that it uh, needs at that time some time to open the window and then we get uh, the uh, carbon, uh, the green book on uh, emissions trading on the table at the, uh, uh, in, in 2000 and uh, that creates a real heated debate in Germany on emissions trading. And everyone uh, talked about emissions trading, not talking about what uh, just has been said, what could be the alternative on emissions trading. Should it be a tax? Should it be a charge? Should it be requirements, command and control? Everyone uh, focused on emissions tra trading and what the other instruments could deliver or not deliver and what would be the impacts uh, of those other instruments. Well, uh, when we uh, tried to implement uh, uh, emissions trading for, from the uh, academic point of view, it is uh, very simple. It's uh, said only cap and trade. That's a very simple instrument, and you have only to implement that. We learned when we tried to implement that that we have two different worlds, the world of the uh, academia and the political world. And there is a huge difference between those uh, both worlds, and we learned that by implementing the, uh, the emissions trading scheme, and Jos uh, mentioned that before in his uh, conclusions. It has been a long-lasting process, and uh, we had uh, in the first and the second uh, trading period one directive, but 27, 28 different national allocation plans, different national uh, emissions trading schemes. Uh, and that changed uh, during uh, the decisions we made for the uh, third trading period to make it a European uh, instrument. What do we have now? And uh, I can agree what uh, Danny uh, Element said. Well, in my view, uh, the system is working. The system is working, and some, uh, it is said in Germany, well, the market uh, uh, failed, and that's in my mind not true because uh, we have a huge supply but a, a less demand and the price uh, did go down. That's very easy. And the question is uh, whether the framework uh, is the right one or whether we have to adjust the framework for uh, the emissions uh, trading uh, scheme. To be very, uh, very clear on that, it's not a perfect instrument what we have at the moment. Uh, we have a lot of compromises, it has been said by Jos, and those compromises were, were uh, necessary to get it. Uh, and therefore we had the pilot phase, uh, and uh, the pilot phase was a really weak one, but it was necessary to convince the actors that they can benefit from emissions trading. Therefore we need such a uh, uh, pilot phase and we learn from other countries which are at the moment uh, implementing such a, a system that they have similar thoughts on that, that they created the pilot phase. We have the seven uh, regional systems in China. We have the, uh, uh, the implementation in South Korea, which also is working with a kind of a pilot phase. 
what, what, what did we learn? Well, if I would write a book on the implementation of emissions trading, I would call it, uh, well, rules to implement an unknown animal. Uh, and uh, that means what, what uh, should be taken into account. Uh, it's necessary to do it step by step to convince the people that they could have some benefits by emissions trading. And uh, what we learned through the first and second trading period has been that we had some success stories, but also a lot of failures, and then we tried to adjust the system. Which means we need a smart start, and we had that, 2005 to 2007. And what we learned, and what has been said this morning, what is very, very, very important, and uh, we uh, have to deal with that for the, force, uh, for the f uh, upcoming phase, that's data collection. Data collection is a key issue, and when we implemented emissions trading in Germany, we didn't know what's going on on the level of the different companies. Situation changed. We are now perfectly informed what's going on in the field of the different companies. We know uh, about the production, we know about the emissions, uh, everything is on the table, and that's one uh, advantage we have, uh, we have uh, got by, by emissions trading. Very important, and that has been mentioned by several people here around the table, is awareness raising. Uh, it has been said, well, emissions trading changed the mentality in the uh, companies. That means money, and now one has to optimize the system, one has to optimize the produ production processes, and one can discuss on that basis. And uh, some engineers uh, said to me, well, beautiful emissions trading, now I can uh, get to my CEO and can uh, discuss about uh, improvement of the, uh, of the uh, uh, production processes. Um, another issue which has been mentioned is that we have impacts on other pollutants if you deal with emissions trading, if you deal with renewable energy policy, that means not only reduction of CO2, but also reduction of SO2, NOx, and so on, and so on. It's not only the advantage of, uh, of uh, emissions trading, but we are, and that should not be forgotten, we are in a whole package of different instruments. And the question is, what are the interaction between the different instruments? And that has to be discussed year by year by year so that there is a review needed. Then we heard, uh, we heard about the opportunity costs. Yeah, we had those opportunity costs. We had only a limited opportunity to, to auction and uh, the uh, power generations used that opportunity to pass the uh, emissions trading price through the uh, power price. Um, the benefit has been with the shareholders, not with the uh, environment and not with the, with the, uh, uh, with the uh, people which, which uses, uh, which uses uh, power. Being aware of the uh, of the uh, uh, 
interactions between the different uh, instruments, um, we have to be clear what does that mean for the next phase. We have the uh, decisions by the heads of states, 2030 package, and what does that mean for emissions trading and for non-emissions uh, non trading, and that is the upcoming discussions we have now before us. So, uh, to sum up, there is another question which has to be discussed, that's a question of the relation between the national and the European level. Is there an opportunity to uh, be, uh, be more ambitious on the national level? And what does that mean for emissions trading? Because that's a European instrument and uh, uh, we are at the moment discussing that very uh, intensively. Where is room for the improvement? Could it be a blueprint for other countries, for other regions? And I say, uh, I say yes, we are in contact with the Chinese, we are in contact with the South Koreans, we are in contact with Ukraine, with uh, Kazakhstan and other people which are uh, now in favor of uh, the implementation of emission trading. Could emissions trading contribute to the beautiful $100 billion question, which has to be decided by the end of that year? We had such a discussion on, uh, on uh, climate uh, financing, international climate financing, uh, in the, in the uh, context of the G7 meeting, and hopefully we will get a decision by the G7 on that uh, issue. So uh, emissions trading and the, uh, the next steps in the European emissions trading scheme is very important in my view for the development for the road up to Paris and uh, we have to show that we would like to use such an uh, instrument in the next uh, period and the period beyond that and uh, otherwise we will not be able to deliver what the heads of states decided. They decided that emissions trading should contribute 43% based on 2005 level up to the year 2030. And that's very, very ambitious. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Marco Menschik, uh, Director General of uh, CEPI, um, which represents the interests of the pulp and paper companies in Europe. Thank you. Um, I try to think to say something new, which is quite a challenge here. Uh, but I'm allowed to anecdotes as well following the rest um, and I will, I will share those with you. My first day on the job was a long time ago and in the Netherlands I had to go to a meeting on the nine point, nine point agreement on industrial CHP in the Dutch benchmarking covenant. I went home that day and told my wife I was going to find another job because this was really, really horrible. I was with a guy some of you know called Vianney Sheens and we spent weeks and weeks and weeks on the details of the nine points on industrial CHP. Um, it was the days where in the Netherlands on the first and second allocation plan we met every Wednesday at the Dutch Business Federation to receive someone who would come back to, from Brussels, and I told you yesterday, yesterday, who would say, I heard this from this guy, Del Beck, and we would all say, ooh, then we need another day to discuss what comes from Brussels. Um, and we had no clue, to be honest. Um, I was chairing the so-called Calimero group at the time for the small emitters, uh, and the Italians know what Calimero should be. It's a small duck who says, I'm small, they're big, and it's not fair. Um, 
From that, you can only conclude that industry, and my question on the table was what was been the impact on industry, but at least the impact of industry was that we all made it far more complicated than it started out to be, and we're quite good at that as, uh, as such as well. Just a, a short note to the side. What did it do for industry? Well, I'd like to raise a few things that were mentioned before. Um, don't underestimate the underestimated impact. What I mean by that is that CO2 is on the agendas of every board, every company, every national and European federation for the last 10 years. It's actually done something very good. It made all the ETS experts of the start the bosses of the European Trade Federations, and I'm very grateful to you for that support in my career. Um, but it is on the agenda. And you can really take any CEO in the paper industry from small to large, and you will have discussed this subject one way or another in the meeting. It has created, I would say, holy and unholy alliances as well, um, and some of them still run around. We count every ton, and in that sense, don't underestimate the benefit of MRV. Um, at the time where I described the Netherlands, we were using the ANOIC system um, as a starting point. And the whole start and rise of the Dutch emission authority of the monitoring, etc., I think has brought great benefit, which in itself has caused emission reductions. Um, I'm a strong favorite of the theory that when you organize your company, um, that sometimes unexpected things help you, meaning if there's a fire, don't collect your staff outside on the street, but bring them to a bar and you're sure everyone is there. In this case, talking about emission trading in itself might have been the bigger effect than the carbon price as such. Because it being on the agenda on and on and on and on to a level where it has caused irritation and disturbance. And I've had board members saying not again this subject has at least firmly rooted it in, in lots of discussions on company level. I don't agree with my predecessor on some things because it has reduced emissions, at least in my sector. We are 900 permits in ETS, we used to be, now we're 700 after the Germans merged CHP and installations again. Um, 43 million ton in 2005, down to 31.5 now, which is not production that went lower, but that's real reductions in bioenergy, which is the benefit of the paper industry, and in consolidation. And that's where, at least with the same tonnage, I think we can speak of real emission reductions, but it also brings the real question on how it has driven investments. And that's where I'm less clear. The average company in Europe has about five mills, and I would like to put this puzzle to you. Um, you could line those five up, that's what analysts do. There's one mill which is clear that it will be closed at some stage in history. It's not been invested in for 10 years, and it's not gonna get the new investment either. There's one other mill which is the love baby of the company. And the reason is it makes the most euro out of every euro, and probably the wife of the local mill manager can cook better than anyone else. Any investment decision coming from the top will go to that installation. Now what we haven't solved in between is where the investments go in the three mills in the middle. Because the thought was that the carbon price would drive investments in those mills to get better. But what the financials will tell you is not to invest there, but only in the best mill because you have a higher return. That puzzle we haven't solved, and at some stage in a stakeholder meeting, Yvonne and I were talking about the, the what was it, innovation accelerator. That was a long time ago, um, where we thought of surpluses of credits, etc. But 
the puzzle in the upcoming period when the crisis is more or less over and we're growing again, um, paper industry is doing quite well in production terms, is how to make sure that we somehow solve this issue of getting the investment which will never go to the last mill, but not only to the first mill, and only the first mill can also be outside of Europe. Those are the puzzles we need to solve, not only on breakthrough technologies, but also on real investments. Some will come because of LCP breaths, fact, but new investments in new production technology in a Europe with a stabilizing population, still a relatively stabilizing G GDP, that's a puzzle where we still need to have a careful look at the ETS in the next stage. And I'd like to share my misery, so I throw it to you. Now it's your problem, not only mine. But that's the puzzle we try to solve, where we are extremely positive on innovations, breakthroughs, and NER 400, but that will fund the technology that we normally would not invest in. It's further away. The question in between is how do you get the investments in Europe on the technology we should invest in, and not only in the best mill in the lineup as such. Um, I think that is a puzzle for every sector. It applies to steel, cement, glass, metals, etc. And sometimes it's a smaller lineup of five, but in this case, this exact company has three mills in the US and it becomes a bigger lineup, um, which again is the puzzle of investments, which will lead to the real reductions later on. Um, a few final remarks. The underestimated unused impact, I still believe, is the 2050 roadmaps of the sectors. Sarah is here. Chris Davies, at the time of the low carbon roadmap by Hedegaard, wrote in his parliament report that the Commission should take careful account of all the industrial roadmaps made, evaluate them, assess them, and then discuss with industry how to use them in the future. I would reiterate those amendments. I like those in his report. Um, but there's still room to take that longer-term view and combine it with the future of ETS as, uh, as well. In the end, um, I think there is an impact. I think the awareness is by far the biggest impact which has led to reductions. The price will follow. If the price will solve things, I'm not sure if we don't really fine-tune this investment question, which is what I hope to discuss with you. Um, I started by saying I was in The Hague on the receiving end of news of Mr. Delbeck. I evaluated through stakeholder meetings, and I think we should go further. Jos, that's my last, is that I would propose that we have all EU ETS stakeholder meetings here instead of in Borchette, where the coffee is lousy. So thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. And now our final panelist, uh, Brian E. Worthington, um, founder of Sunbag, and you. Uh, thank you very much. And um, coming at the end of this panel is quite difficult to say something new, so I'm going to endeavour to say new things. Um, the question, the essay question, is how has the ETS worked? Um, there, there are obviously going to be different metrics by which you can measure it, and many of the speakers have pointed out that the, the great success is that it's it's been established. It's broadly uh, it has broad coverage and it establishes a single price, which is quite a feat in Europe. Um, but, and there's going to have to be a but, because it, it, it has become incredibly complex and I would argue quite divorced from reality. Um, Franz Joseph talked about there being two worlds of academics and politicians. There is a third world and that's the real world <laughs> where things happen. And, uh, and in that world, emissions are falling quite fast. Um, far faster than we ever projected. And now, the projections that we have for 2020 and 2030 are really out of step with reality. So we, so we have a, a system that's actually, you know, 
fu functioning and very well designed and, and well understood and has all sorts of symbolic uh, um, elements to it, which are hugely important. We won't want to lose them, but it's out of step with reality. So I find myself looking back over the last 10 years still holding the faith that this thing can deliver, but I absolutely agree with the previous speakers who've said this has not been tested yet. Uh, we, we have not set uh, targets that are meaningful for it. And I think what we're going to see now is a transition, uh, probably, I don't know if it's going to happen in this phase, but maybe the next phase, um, where we see the, the carbon price taking over from far more expensive interventions that we're making um, to support uh, lower carbon uh, technologies. And will it pass the test? That's the question. Um, we'll discuss that, I'm sure, in the third session. But going back to how it's worked, one element that's not been mentioned, which I think we ought to talk about briefly, is, is the fact that if you look at environmentally what has the ETS achieved, possibly one of its biggest achievements is going to be the final signing of the Montreal Protocol in November to rule out HFCs. Why do I say that? Because offsetting within the ETS has been probably one of the most successful elements that no one's mentioned. We, ha we gave ourselves a budget of 1.7 billion tonnes of offsets, and guess what? The private sector went out and bought them all, and it bought them at incredibly low prices. I mean, prices that you just couldn't imagine, because that's what markets do really well. They find the least cost abatement, and that least cost abatement was HFC credits in China and India. And guess what? They all flooded in. And, and that's meant that it's had you know, a, quite an amazing effect, both in terms of those countries' understandings of markets, so China suddenly goes, hang on, why is all this money coming in for something we you know, didn't even think about? And now we have China uh, starting its own trading schemes, uh, thinking, well, there's something in this. Um, so you know, that is the ETS that did that. And, and now we have the HFC problem much better understood, and regulators finally, a decade later, are, are looking to, uh, to rule out the use of HFCs in, in the Montreal Protocol. So that's a big tick, I'd say. Not perhaps what we expected when we set out on this, but, it, but it's definitely delivered. Now, uh, the, you know, the other elements that I, I wanted to just talk about are this interaction with the things that are happening in the real world. And it's absolutely clear that in the power sector, there are many drivers that are driving down emissions. We saw a fall over the traded sector last year, in one year alone, of close to 5% in emissions. And this is at a time when the worst impacts of the recession are, are, are receding, and we should be, we're coming back to economic growth. It's, we've decoupled growth from emissions, uh, and far faster than we ever thought we would. And our projections and all our modeling have not caught up. So we still tell ourselves, oh my goodness, this is all so difficult. Well, actually the evidence is it's not that difficult, and emissions are falling. Now it's not cheap, because we're doing it in quite expensive ways in some places, but we're still doing it. And the ETS has got to keep pace with that reality. The renewables genie is out of the bottle. You know, it's having a big effect. If energy efficiency is driving down demand for electricity in a way that we never, ever anticipated. So in power, the story is good, and we can afford to go further, and we can go afford to go faster, and ETS has got to catch up. On industry, however, it's a completely different picture. And the reality we have to face in this room is that deindustrialization of Europe is a reality. It's not an you know, academic thing of whether it's happening or not. We are losing industry, not because uh, it's leaking off through carbon leakage, just because it's competing for capital in a world in which capital is very spooked. It does not want to invest in places where it perceives risk. And if you're thinking about uh, traditional investment in industrial sectors now in Europe, you look at the cap, 
that, let's remind ourselves, goes to zero in 2070, you know, this cap does not stop. And they think, oh, hang on a minute, how are we going to make money there? That's going to be a bit tricky. So, you know, no surprises, it goes somewhere else. We've got to grapple with this. And, and the way of doing this is to not see industry as, as opponents to ambition, but to work with them. And that you've got to do what we've done in the power sector, which is layer up lots of policies that help people make the transition. And in the industrial sectors, we've literally left them high and dry. We've said, here's a cap go and sort yourselves out, or you can buy offsets, that would be great. But that's like paying a mortgage, that's like paying rent when you could be paying off a mortgage. Why would you do that? You want to invest, and you've got to find technologies and support technologies in those sectors that enables deep decarbonisation. And that's the next challenge, I think. The, it hasn't worked yet. We haven't got the suite of policies together for those industrial sectors to adapt. The ETS is definitely a signal, but it's unfortunately a signal at the moment that's all stick and needs a few more carrots. And uh, the NER 300, 400, whatever we call it, just ain't going to cut it, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's too small. It, it, you know, it's, it, we, need, we need to do what we've done with renewables and power. We need to do that with decarbonisation in industry. And I think then we can solve some of the political impasses that, we've, that we face, get ourselves back onto a more ambitious pathway that is actually in tune with reality. Because the good news is solving climate change in a European context so far has been, okay, the recession would be rather not have gone through that, but we've, we've invested out of that recession and we're seeing investment now in all sorts of new technologies. Our balance of trade on environmental services is good and strong. We need to get it stronger and we shouldn't be um, scared of using climate change as a reason to reinvest into our economy. Um, and the ETS should be a vehicle that enables us to do that, but we've still got a bit more work to do. Thank you. Thank you, Bryony. Um, I would like to give the opportunity to the panel if they want to comment on, 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 on any other. Um, yeah, stick, please. Yeah. Just if I could add one quick comment on, on complexity, which is something which always comes back, right? Uh, it's as a major sort of disadvantage with cap and trade is complexity. And, and you know, just to start with a quick anecdote. Uh, I think it was back when we had the, the NAP guidance documents um, for phase two, and there was something we really couldn't understand uh, in, in the way it was set up, and we, I think we got Peter Seppel on the phone in the end, and, and um, we asked the question, and Peter's reply was, well, Stig, I'm very disappointed with your sloppy reading. This is all very well explained in, in footnote 54 on page 99. Um, so, of course, you know, there is complexity here, and sometimes the nitty-gritties, uh, are extremely complex and not transparent, not easy to understand. But I don't think that is um, necessarily something that makes it a bad system. I think you know taxes with rebates and you know uh, exemptions and everything is also complex. And you know many critics of, of cap and trade, like Naomi Klein, she says that you know cap and trade will never work because you can't mobilize the people behind it. It's too complex. You know, you don't get the grassroots support you need. But I would disagree with that because, I mean, look at what happened in New York back in September. I mean, thousands of people, 100,000 people marched in New York in support of carbon pricing. And what is carbon pricing? That is cap and trade or something similar. So it's quite easy to mobilize behind the idea of putting a price on carbon. It's easy to mobilize the, uh, behind the idea of putting a cap on emissions. Because when you talk about emissions trading, many people tend, tend to focus on the trading part, which is where a lot of the complexity is. But you know, in emissions trading, or cap and trade, cap is actually king, right? Cap is the important part. And the cap can be simple. That is just put in place to achieve the targets. And that is actually 
you know, even if you don't understand all the nitty-gritties and you don't, you know, even if the, com if the system as such is complex, you can mobilize people, public opinion, around the idea of capping emissions and pricing carbon. Okay, uh, thanks uh, again. I think uh, we have, uh, let's say, until five minutes to, to one. We are going to delay a bit in the, the, the lunch because we were also late. So I open now uh, uh, questions from the, from the audience. Um, we have a slightly more than half an hour. And uh, we also have uh, some questions uh, through internet uh, because we, we, we gave the opportunity for, for people, you know, some days in advance to, to send some questions. So I, I may uh, also use them uh, towards the end of the, of the session, please. Uh, could you introduce yourself and, and all, of, all of you please uh, talk uh, close to your mics because uh, this is live streamed and uh, we were asked to, to do it because otherwise uh, there are problems. Thanks. My name is Sarah de Bloch, and um, I'm here with AITA, working on EU policy. Thanks for, to all the panelists on, on the, the, the presentations. I think there was a, a theme that came back in at least uh, two interventions from Marco and Bryony about the need to stimulate innovation. And I think it's a really important topic that we need to think about going forward, particularly as part of the 2030 Climate and Energy Package. Um, and Bryony, you put the question out there, you know, what could, something needs to be done more than the NER 400 that has been proposed. So I'd be interested to hear if Sandbag has specific uh, proposals and how to stimulate this need for innovation. Um, I mean, the advantage of uh, the NER 400, the NER 300, is that we're using carbon markets as a tool to drive innovation. Um, I recognize that the amount of allowances proposed you know, may not be sufficient to drive the necessary technologies needed, as Marco was saying, in some of these industrial roadmaps. Um, technologies like CCS are being discussed and, and others for a lot of these sectors to meet the long-term um, decarbonization goals. So I'd be interested to hear either from you, Brian, or others, on what other ideas um, could be put forward. Um, thank you very much. Um, I, think, I think we can learn a lot from how we've um, brought renewables on um, in the power sector. And it definitely is not going to all be able to be done uh, through Commission or through the EU. It's going to have to be member states also getting involved and creating policies at member state level. And if you look at the UK now, um, on the back of our market reform package, uh, we're looking to introduce um, systems of support for industrial CCS. Uh, which learn from the contracts for difference that we've now got for the power sector. Now, you can't peg a contract for difference off the wholesale electricity price in industry, but you could peg a contract for difference off the, off the carbon price. Now, that, so that's one tool you could use at member state level to get CCS on industry going. The question is, of course, who pays? Um, and there, we are going to have to bite the bullet. And on the revenues that we're getting from ETS, we shouldn't probably be paying those out in simple compensation payments. That's just silly. That's just putting your finger in the dike. We've got to start using that cash to invest in proper infrastructure and proper solutions that give you long-term uh, insulation against the price. So that's, uh, that's you know, a, one way forward, use the revenues, start to introduce policies that actually give some price stability and a price signal that's high enough in industry to do CCS, and you can make, I think, quite a lot of progress. 
Thank you. I, I would like to, to ask you to, to try to stick to the title of the session, uh, which is how has the EU ETS worked? Because we have a, a, a new session afterwards for the future. I mean, and, 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 and I know that this is difficult because all the three sessions are, are really related. And, um, and in fact, perhaps people from the first session can also talk about, you know, if what they see now after these 10 years is, is really different from what they were thinking when they were, uh, you know, or when, about what people thought when they were uh, designing, uh, studying the, the system, etc. But I, I would like just to focus this debate as, as much as possible on, 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 the, on, the, on the topic. So, um, yeah, here we go. William, yeah. Right, thank you. Uh, whilst I agree with Guy Turner, on the corporate level, there's been no investment. Uh, but certainly in the power sector, investment has been driven by subsidy. But I think what a lot of people forget is that the EU ETS works at plant level. And there have been enormous uh, investments at plant level right the way across Europe in the power sector, I know, and within the UK in the industrial sector at plant level, where plant managers have been able to go to their board and say, I've got this investment which will increase the efficiency of my plant and reduce carbon and reduce my costs. And I think that plant level of investment has been very much underestimated and a tremendous amount of reductions have actually happened by small incremental increases in efficiencies of plant which have been driven by the carbon price. <laughs> um, I don't have the information to say. I, I don't... I don't disagree there's been some effect. I just wanted to make an addendum actually on one point which has been conspicuous by its absence so far and um, Damien I'm looking at you at the moment um, because a few of us bear the scars of battle on aviation and I would actually add that as a success story although we didn't achieve the full inclusion of international um, aviation emissions the inclusion of a sector which is growing rapidly so if industry is flatlining and has leakage problems um, and power sector has been driven down, we have at, um, at a late stage included a sector which has rapidly growing emissions. And um, I think the expansion of the scheme to achieve that, in spite of all of the trials and tribulations that it incurred, um, is definitely a mark of success. And we should applaud that. Thank you. From a, <clears throat> just wanted to add the trader's perspective. Often I get asked and say, well, you know, obviously emissions trading doesn't work, prices are so low. Um, well, I would say, well, emissions trading, as long as, as we didn't breach the cap per se on the face of it, it worked. And secondly, as an instrument, um, it's very liquid. So even in, 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 in days where we've seen high volatility with, with base uh, backloading discussion or, or new verified data coming out, um, of course we had seen massive drops and spikes, but everything on the back of very big volume. So that shows me that the instrument, there's enough participants, there's always liquidity in the market, and so on a day-to-day -day basis, it's relatively easy to trade 500, a million, two million, three million tons, which is great in itself. Whether the price is a driver is a different matter. Um, and this is now, so this is the daily liquidity. I would argue that the, the longer-term problem is, the, if, if we look at what, what really, why does um, subsidy 
why do subsidies work so well? It's the predictability. I get a 10 or even 20-year offtake agreement at a fixed price. It's very easy for an investor to go in and, and have a long-term model and, and return. Um, in the carbon market, if I wanted to model my return of investment, I have a three-year horizon at best. So, um, and this is because of a lot of political uncertainty. I remember in, in 2008, we, we did do already in 2008 five-year strips of carbon. So people were buying or selling 500,000 tons, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12 in a strip. That hasn't happened in a long time because there was so much uncertainty in the back that really the liquidity was always in the front year. But with a one- or two-year liquidity, I can't plan an investment that's supposedly going to be there for another five or ten years. And so... I think it's a, it's a kind of, a, you know, it works as an instrument, but if you really want to drive innovation, you have to have the, the, the predictability and the liquidity in the back where people can say, okay, I want to sell or buy carbon for the next five or six years. Um, and that, that's, we're on the way, I guess, you know, with once, once phase four crystallizes, maybe also with MSR, but, but it's been a very bumpy road. Yeah, thank, thank you very much, and I'm, I'm a little bit of your school, I think, because you said stick to the subject. So you asked the question whether this thing has worked or not. I think we need to remember a little bit what we're talking. We're talking about the ETS, has it worked or not? The fact that there are many other policies as to what we do with the recycling of money and so on. These are policies that are around the ETS, but the question is, has the ETS worked or not? And I think that the, the answer, you know, you got one answer from, from Benedict as a market, as, as, as mechanically, yes, it has liquidity. Nobody can question it has liquidity. We, we've been in this market. But the, uh, the fact of the matter is that it's been created as an instrument for those cover to, ex to establish a price and for those who are covered by this to manage risk the risk of carbon exposure. The fact of the matter is that, yes, it has worked because, yes, you can hedge your risk, but at the same time, it has added, and you'll hear from many people in the business community, that has added another layer of risk, of regulatory uncertainty risk. And that's also undeniable. It's true. The second thing that we, we, we need to say is that it has worked within its, its reality, within the parameters that it has been set. But this has been anything but normal times. So if you had a machine that was built for certain parameters and all of a sudden the world around you kind of went way outside those parameters, I think it's very difficult to really make a very accurate judgment. Because I don't think anybody conceived that we were going to get into this kind of, of recession. And the machine simply had also design flaws. It, it's simply true like that. It's recognized by the introduction of the MSR. I think that's an addressing part of the flaw. But the other thing that I'm, I, I, I will plead, and I've pleaded for a long time, is that we should make always a difference bet uh, uh, yeah, between the, uh, the cause and the effect and the symptom. If we are addressing the symptom, the price, I think we should address the design, and this is what we've done now. We've addressed the design, and hopefully this design uh, rectification will go. Finally, going back to the uh, other issues that, that were mentioned, we have to understand that this thing has changed culture. Culture is the most difficult thing to change. It has changed culture at the operational level. Plants, pecking order, the price is very real. It's taking a little bit more time to change the culture at the long-term investment. For people have to believe that this is a long-term thing, and you can't change that overnight. It is coming there, but we shouldn't be disappointed if it takes a little bit more time. Thank you, Andre. Um, getting back to the, to the panel, Bryony, perhaps you, you, you want to... 
Okay. So, Ingo. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Ingo Ramming, Comets Bank. Uh, I think uh, one of the points to, to address in the complexity and about the market, the, the market work is that I think if we went back, I mean, all was about fuel switch prices and market factors that are influencing the market. If you go back the last three years, I think everyone got, got more expert or tried to get expert about what's a trialog and all those kind of factors than actually looking into the market. And I think that led as well to a lot of confusion. Confusion as well in banks, I assume the same Andre was mentioning or referring to it uh, on that side. And I think the backloading experience was obviously maybe the, the worst uh, time in the carbon market. And I think we're all very grateful that the discussion on the market stability reserve actually worked compared to backloading quite smoothly. Let's see how it ends. But I think that was a, a, a very positive thing. And if that is one of the lessons learned out of this process, that uh, there's as well a responsibility from politicians, from commission and uh, stakeholders uh, to basically take care that the credibility of the market is not endangered through that kind of discussion. That I think is important. And the other point is a lot of discussion about prices. I mean, if I just look at the price forecasts of our house in the last 10 years, uh, starting in 2005, we saw the price at 30. Uh, in 2008, I think everyone was looking at, are we going to 30 or 40 euros? And if I look around to some of the analysts, I'm sure you were exactly at the same kind of stage. I think we have to accept that this market is just very, very complex and difficult to assume. I mean, the, the impact of renewable energy, and Brioni mentioned the, the potential impact of energy efficiency going forward. I think that is just very difficult to model uh, on that side. And uh, I think possibly we should take all the, the new price forecasts with, especially if we try to forecast 10 years or five years uh, with a pinch of salt. And uh, uh, I mean, we're not able to forecast prices towards the end of the year. So forecasting prices for 10 years, especially in such a difficult environment, I think is uh, quite ambitious. Thank you, Louis. Yeah. Yes. Um, in, in the context of how, did you want to answer Ingo's point? To um, Ingo's point, if the ability to forecast prices more than five years out is a fool's errand, how do you expect the scheme to change investment decisions in sectors which have asset lives of 20 or 30 years? Well, I assume you have the same if you are, um, if you want to forecast uh, oil prices. I mean, who expected the development of oil prices uh, where we are right now? So I think this is just part of the, uh, the normal process. And this is part of the uncertainty in industry that you will have these this changes. And you will have to make your assumptions. You have to make your uh, different scenarios that you mentioned, and then it will have an impact. But I mean, believing that this is the certainty, I mean, you have it with feed-in tariffs. And of course, that is possibly as well one of the success stories why there was so much investments in renewable energy. But uh, my point is not to ignore this. And I, I very well agree that this has an impact on decision-making by, uh, by companies, which is obviously key. 
but my, my only point is that sometimes in such environments, uh, if it's now about carbon prices will be at 40 in 2030 and all this kind of discussions, I mean, this is just something we have to be realistic that this is a forecast. Just to respond to my own question, I think the answer is <laughs> it's to do with the permanence of the instrument and the direction. So going back to if the absolute or precise price is impossible to forecast, there has to be another basis upon which to change the investment decisions in sectors which are putting billions of euros at play. If, it, if those billions of euros in the energy sector are not redirected towards lower carbon alternatives, then it will not have any, the instrument is, is ineffective. And going back to my, the, the sort of RWE comment in 2009-10, they made those commitments Okay, their business has changed a little since then. But those commitments were made not on the basis of the carbon price, on, the, on their, on their um, belief that the instrument will exist and that there will be some kind of price signal. Therefore, as a strategic direction, that's the way they're going to go. So I just think that, that is not about the minutiae of whether it's 20 euros, 25 euros, or whatever. It's about the existence of the policy instrument that will drive their investment decisions to be that are monetizable in the long run. And that has to be brought through in all the 2030 communication and even beyond. Marco, yeah. I'd like to complicate things further. That's my job normally. Um, <laughs> but two things, one on the markets and one on the forecast. Um, I tried in my speech not to use the word carbon leakage. I succeeded, which is pretty cool for industry, but also not to mention the word MSR. But if you talk about forecast, I would really love to have the forecast, not that the MSR has started, but when it ends. When the surplus is gone, when everyone knows that we're going to be very short, where are the barriers then? Is that 50 or 70 euros? I think that's the forecast which are in 2028 or 29 or whenever, which we really need if we talk about these long-term investment decisions. That's at least where industry is now not getting nervous at the start of the MSR, but at the end of the MSR, because that's when the next boiler will start coming in. So if, please help me there in your forecast. Secondly, I think we need to make a split, because out of the, what is it, 11,000 installations in ETS, I think about eight or 9,000 don't look at the markets. They're compliance companies. At least that's in my membership. The overall vast majority starts thinking about the markets by the time it's February, um, towards their April reporting. So you talk about 750 large-scale companies who are trading, that might be called Shell or NL and whatever, but the vast majority in ETS, I think has a bigger signal in the psychology, in the awareness, in the fact that the instrument will stay, than in exactly the next forecast, et cetera, because they're gonna look if they can comply yes or no, and that's where it stops for that year, and then they're gonna move on. And as I'm in Italy, I have one Italian company with one ton of CO2 in the ETS. Um, they're, they're not looking at your market forecast as such, but two elements, thanks. Thank you. Uh, Louis. Now, yes. I'm allowed back on now. Um, uh, so, in terms of um, thinking about how the ETS has succeeded, uh, I want to build a little bit on uh, one of Benedict's earlier points on liquidity. Um, so, Benedict pointed out that in 2003 we used to measure the total volume in the market in the hundreds of thousands of tons. Um, from 2004-05 it was in the millions of tons. And very quickly after that we got to the billions of tons per year. And that's an absolutely incredible growth um, of, of, of traded volume and it's a mark of the success um, of, the, of the system. The, 
the main driver of that uh, was touched on by um, uh, Felix earlier, which is the liberalization of the power sector. Now, essentially, um, the carbon market exists between the, um, the power producers who look to hedge long-term um, and indeed re-hedge as fuel prices change. And uh, without, the, without the power sector, there would be no demand or very, very little demand for uh, purchasing carbon emissions in uh, uh, 2016, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Um, and that liquidity has come uh, uh, that liquidity has come from that sector, and indeed, uh, the carbon market was pretty much unique in that forward trades started before spot trades. Um, you can't, you can't. You, back in 2003, you couldn't buy carbon. You could only buy the promise of carbon in the future. Um, and uh, so, the market has engaged with carbon very well. Um, but uh, I think that uh, industry um, hasn't really engaged. Um, uh, and that the banks um, have historically been the provider of that forward market. They're funding the market by buying spot and selling back forward to the utilities. Um, Korea is a, a good example of uh, an emissions trading scheme that will struggle when it comes to liquidity because you're not allowed to participate unless you are physically involved in the system. Um, and indeed, the utilities have no incentive to trade forward because they don't have a liberalized uh, electricity market. And I think to date, there's been something like 10 trades. Um, so really, I'm sounding a bit of a warning. Um, you know, the utilities are being, uh, uh, becoming more regulated. The banks are being squeezed out of emissions markets by regulation. And the thing that we've taken for granted, the success that has come from um, uh, that, that is measured by the liquidity that's out there. Uh, that liquidity is dropping, and it's dropping quite, uh, quite quickly. We're in a situation now where liquidity should be at the absolute height. We've got massive auctions. We've got companies um, becoming short that have never been short before. Liquidity should be higher, and yet we're actually going lower. So a word of warning, um, just as industry uh, is starting to need um, access to uh, liquidity and indeed credit, the suppliers of that liquidity and credit are starting to pull back. Thank you. I'm taking um, uh, several questions now because we, we are running out of time. So, uh, Dirk. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> so, Dirk Forrester from AIDA. Uh, I wanted to pick up on a couple themes from the panel that, that um, when I would have answered this question about how does it work, that would spring to mind. And, and the first is that point that a couple of you made about the cap and the delivery of the cap. And I guess that's the foremost thing to me, is it's an environmental program that delivered environmentally. And it, it took me back really to, um, I'm really fortunate to be sitting next to one of my mentors, Dan Dudek, from the old, old days when I was a congressional staffer working on the acid rain law. And Dan was at EDA in the same role, but a, a different focus. And I remember how uh, my version of that guy, uh, Turner, question of what would have been like without emissions trading was all of the other titles of the Clean Air Act that I had to deal with back then, where you just pull out your hair worrying about molecules and best available technologies and how to set all of these things up, incredibly complex. Um, and Dudak, who had engineered much of the SO2 design, is sitting back with, while the rest of his environmental colleagues were all worried about this molecule and that molecule, and all he cared about was uh, the cap. That was it. 
as long as that number stayed there. We had huge fights about allocation and about trading systems and everything, but nobody, nobody touched the cat. So environmentally, I think that's the number one thing. And uh, when I think sort of forward in time, uh, in, in my time at the White House, one of the fun things I got to do was orchestrate a meeting for Bill Clinton to meet with a bunch of industry CEOs. Um, and I'll always remember like one of the main themes that came out of the meeting. This was right before Kyoto, not long before I met Joss. And uh, one of the CEOs said, uh, when asked for advice about what should the United States be pushing for, where should the United States take, his, uh, take its uh, climate policy, he said, you should look at the EPA acid rain program because it's the only thing those guys ever did that came in ahead of schedule and below budget. It was below predicted cost, you know, at a, I think at that point in time, 90% below what the modeled cost that we had worked with on, in, in the Congress. So I think that's the thing ultimately that, that sort of uh, uh, rang true to me across all of these, these uh, remarks was it's delivered the environmental reductions, maybe as a backstop to other policies or complementary to other policies, but it's also done so at a low cost, which is actually something that's a, that's a benefit of it and should inspire us to be able to do more. The final thing I guess I wanted to comment on was, um, I have to come back to, to Denny's point about the, the proof of concept on, on uh, how it could work internationally and, and uh, applaud um, uh, the framers for setting in place a linking directive that enabled that to happen. And I do think that, that part of the success of it, and the, and the role that I'm in now as I travel around and meet with businesses that are trying to come to grips with a new emissions trading program in their province in China or in Korea, I'm struck with uh, how much of the talent pool, um, and I'm thinking of one individual in particular at a Korean bank, who just seemed really savvy. And I pulled him aside to talk to him about, okay, so how did you learn about this stuff? And he's like, oh, I was in the CDM for years. I tried to do some deals with you. You don't remember me, but this was the firm I was at. And we did a bunch of CDM deals. So it really did broaden this base of experience that to me, I think that's one of the, the uh, pieces of that proof of concept that's been really, really important. Um, it's not just done it around Europe. It's, it's done it more broadly. Thank you. And yeah, thank you. My name is Sanjay Stecker and I work for Chess, uh, which is a Czech power utility. Uh, I would like to comment on one question which was raised by some panelists, and the question is whether uh, the EU ETS has influenced the investment behavior in power companies. Uh, I think it certainly did. At least in Chess, uh, we, we built a new CCGT plant based on the expectation of the future decarbonization, and we also uh, try to modernize our coal fleet. Uh, I think the problem is how this past experience is now perceived by the management. And I have to say that it's not perceived as a success story. Because, for example, the CCGT plant, completely brand new, is being kept idle for the most of the time. And so we are losing money. And I, I'm afraid that in the future it will be quite difficult to, to regain the trust of, of the management and to persuade them to, to invest, to make new investment uh, based on the EU ETS and on the decarbonization. And that's why I think that we should make sure that the reform of EU ETS will be sufficiently robust and stable. Thank you. Yeah, Felix Mattes from Öko Institute. I think uh, I would like 
to challenge the debate on, on, the, on the results. Uh, and th I think, yes, the instrument works. Yes, an impressive trading emerged. Yes, culture has changed. And yes, there have been international spillovers. But uh, there are different dimensions if it comes to the outcomes. And I think in the end of the day, it's about the outcomes. Uh, and I think there is a very mixed picture. Uh, number one, if we look back to 2008, we have seen that the carbon price has, has played a significant role for optimizing uh, the production. I think when we had the 30 euro or 25 euro, we have seen totally different dispatch in the power sector. And that, that has shown that if there is a scarcity price, it can work, work very well. Unfortunately, we don't see a scarcity price, uh, have, seen, have seen a, scarcity a real scarcity price for, for many other years. So it is proved as a proof if there is a scarcity price, the optimal level of production will fully consider the price of carbon. That is that's the result. It is a bit more complicated if it comes to the investment. And I think that there we have essentially we have three different, uh, different uh, experiences with this, or the empirical evidence. The first is that in the good old times of the second allocation, or in the second compliance periods, we have seen uh, some investments triggered by the uh, price of carbon, some of them, unfortunately, uh, high carbon because of the fuel-specific free allocation. That is one of the reasons many, many of the, especially of the German big utilities, lose money because the revenue from free allocation has been considered as a revenue stream and stream in the world of uh, fuel-specific free allocation. This has unfortunately played a role to trigger a high carbon investment. That has reversed after the full allocation. Uh, but the question is still, and that is second, that's the second perspective on the investment is, I would say uh, what we can prove is that the ETS has avoided counterproductive investment. It, it, it has avoided investments. Because if, the, if, if, you, if, you, if you make your planning, if you see the low carbon price, you go, you say the, the signal from the market is go for high carbon investments. But if you, go, if you go with this message to your investment committee, they ask for the cap and ask the question, does it fit into the future framework? Clear answer is no. And therefore, the answer is no investment, fortunately, also no investment in high-carbon assets. The key question is, and that is an open question, and there's no empirical evidence, and my theory is that we have to discuss this in the framework of the, of the, of the general market arrangement, if, is that can the carbon price from the EU ETS not avoid counterproductive investment, but trigger the clean investment? And in the end of the day, uh, we will need this clean investment. Uh, and we, we have survived for 20 years because of the, of the good old monopoly times. But in the end of the day, during the next one or two decades, we need new investments. And uh, the, the open question is if the, if the ETS is robust enough to generate a price which drives the clean investment. And the last evidence, and that is also an important and is mostly ignored. This is, this is not about the outcome in terms of emissions. It is the outcome... Uh, on the cost of the investments which have been there. 
if you eliminate the carbon price, even the small carbon price we have at the moment, the 7 euro point 50, and if you recalculate the wholesale market prices, and if you then would calculate the cost of the German renewable remuneration scheme, this would have generated a significant higher cost of the system. And I think this is, a, this is, a, this is an important point, that, that the investment has triggered by other schemes, but the cost of the, let's say, complementary scheme have been significantly reduced by, by, by putting the price of carbon to the commodity costs. And I think we should not forget that this is also a role for, for, for an ETS, even if a, a pathway would materialize where the carbon price is not the prior trigger for the clean investment. But anyway, the costs of these investments, which can attribute it to other mechanisms, will significantly lower uh, than in the world of the, of the, of the, uh, of the, of the non-carbon. Because in the continental European market, we would be, even at the moment, we would not be at 32 euro for the power sector. We would be in a world of 24 euro per megawatt hour. That would rush the whole power industry into bankruptcy. Yeah? And I think this is an, this is an effect what, what, what one should not ignore. Thank you. I'm taking just uh, the six questions, the, 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 the ones we have, and then we'll, I, I will go back to the, to the panel. So I, I, I would ask you to, to, to be as short as possible because we are almost on uh, finishing. So, Peter. Thank you. I'm just trying to be very quick then. Um, has the ETS worked as it was initially formulated? Well, not entirely. And the fact that we've had to or chosen to intervene and amend um, a few times, most notably in the, sec the biggest amendment for the 2008 package, but equally for the backloading and the, and the market stability reserve and the disallowance of uh, credits from certain HFCs, the answer is we've had to make adjustments as we've been going along. And the important thing is that we have retained the right to be able to intervene and correct where we have found uh, there have been insufficiencies in the scheme. And that, I think, is very important. And if I may just link uh, with a point that uh, Denny made in his first presentation in this session, um, he talked about linking schemes and how the EU scheme is, to some extent, a linked scheme between all of the member states involved in it and indeed the few countries like in the EEA uh, who are part of it. There I would just put this to the room as a question, perhaps we can come back to that in the future session, but in the case of the EU scheme, this so-called multi-country agreement, I think uh, Denny said something like that, there was a level of governance that could manage this comprehensive scheme. If, uh, for the sake of example, we wanted to link our scheme with another biggest or big scheme in another part of the world, whether that be in China or, or in the United States or wherever, um, my question is, who would govern such a system? Um, I was, would assume that before we could intervene and, and propose anything as drastic as a backloading, which of course I would never want to have to do again, but 
even if we wanted to change the parameters of um, one or other criteria, free allocation, market stability reserve, would we to some extent find ourselves locked in a system where we, we either didn't ask the partner that we were linked with whether they wanted to do it and we just went ahead and the chances are we'd upset them quite a bit. Um, but if we just talk to the, let's say it's the Chinese with which we've linked and uh, change our scheme in a way that they agree with, um, when we go to the European Parliament, well, they might say, but hang on, you know, we're not interested what the Chinese think. We're the European Parliament, we have governance over the scheme in Europe. Uh, so there are complexities in linking schemes in terms of governance, and I think they were worthy of being explored uh, because what has worked in the EU is the fact that we have an EU governance level that has enabled us to bring solutions where they were needed, and we would have to ensure that the scheme wasn't in some way compromised by the fact of linking with future schemes uh, for the economic benefits it might re reap. Thank you. Thank you. Yang Sharif Kaneh from EDF. Uh, I'd like just to, to give you a short view about how how we have perceived this, the scheme over years and the positive things and also the, the lesson we have to, to take into account for the future. First, uh, the market has worked, for sure. It has been taken seriously by my company. Uh, we built a, a carbon fund which was very significant and something that we shouldn't have done if the EUETS was not there. Uh, second thing, when the climate energy package, the first one came, it has a it had a strong influence about the decision of the executive committee. We had a target in 2020. We knew that there was auction, and so that changed completely the way we were including carbon in our investment decisions. Uh, in fact, we were talking about forecasts. In fact, it's, it's very difficult to make forecasts over three years, even five, five years. So, but what we do in the, in the power sector, usually we, we do scenarios because there is something you have to, uh, to, to planify sometimes. Uh, uh, these are the fuel prices, the, the evolution of fuel prices over years. And so you cannot forecast that, but you can make scenarios and you, you have different scenarios. And so, with the carbon regulation, if it is clear that there is one, so you try to affect some carbon price to your scenarios. And the most important thing is the stability of the regulation. And the, the most difficult thing we had in, in the last few years was to judge the solidity of the regulation, and especially the interaction of the EU ETS with the other regulation on renewables and energy efficiency and with the power market. So this is something that we should improve in the future if we want that EU ETS is delivering a price that trigger new investment, like Felix was saying. We have really to pay attention to the lessons of the interaction of the different policies in order to frame a system that really uh, be taken by, by the power sector, by the industry, uh, has a way to frame that in this long-term scenarios. Because in order to make long-term investment, you have to get a long-term vision. And more solid the vision is on the regulation, better you will be in your decision. Georgia. Thank you. On the, the first panel, I spoke with the head of former uh, rapporteur, and now I would like to, to make a point as current Minister on Environment and Energy on the issue as it worked. Uh, in fact, 
it has worked, but not alone. Uh, and that's, in my opinion, the, the critical point. Without the renewable energy targets, uh, would it be possible to reach the targets uh, on and, and to foster uh, investments on renewable energy just because of the ETS or not? Uh, today, it's clear that the ETS was not enough to foster this uh, uh, innovation, investments on renewable energy. So it was quite wise at that time not only to set targets on CO2, but also on energy efficiency and on renewable energy. That's why I think that, again, and linking with the next panel, it's important to keep working on targets on renewable energy and on energy efficiency and to make sure that uh, we will be able to monitor and to make sure that this is going to uh, be uh, in place. Second, what were the spillovers uh, uh, to foster the global carbon market related to the difficulties that we faced on the ETS uh, uh, in these initial uh, stages. Um, the lack of demand uh, from credits uh, um, from DTS created uh, a problem on developing countries. As I said before, I worked in three years on developing countries uh, at the United Nations Development Programme. And I was seeing from the other side the effect of DTS on difficulties that those countries were facing to go further on low-carbon development. So I really think that we should not only assess the impact of the ETS in Europe, but also the spillovers in developing countries. That's why, again, I think it's very important that our structural reform that we are now launching and the 2030 package, the implementation of the 2030 package, creates openness and linking to sectoral, regional, uh, cap-and-trade schemes that goes beyond CDM on developing countries. Thank you. Uh, Bob? I want to respectfully suggest that this is an easy question to answer, and I think that's what we've heard for the last hour and a half. How do you, how do you answer the question of whether a system has worked? You typically ask, has it improved on the status quo? To, to know that, you have to know something about the counterfactual, and I would suggest that's not obvious. And you also have to have some underlying agreement about how you're measuring the effectiveness of the system, and I would suggest that's not obvious from what we've heard. Some people say it worked because you put a cap on it. Other people say, well, maybe it didn't work as well because the price wasn't high enough or credible enough over time to induce innovation. Um, I'm inclined, arbitrarily, given my utility function, to suggest it works partly for the reason that Denny suggested, that if we're serious about addressing the long-term climate issue through mitigation, we need to think about designing institutions that are gonna, going to address that over time, and I think the EU t ETS represents a very modest first step towards that objective. I also think in the real world, um, cap and trade is not by itself sufficient to address this problem, and we're going to need to think about several other instruments if we're serious about mitigation. Thank you. Jill? Thank you. Um, looking at how we, uh, the ETS has worked, I've recently done a report due out soon where I've interviewed a number of companies in different sectors and added to my own experience, very much supports what Marco and Brian had been saying is that companies obviously and sectors uh, engage with this in different ways, but for many at the compliance level, it has actually led to 
I think, starting from a, a, a journey along this where they have changed their behaviour, starting from a compliance approach to actually looking at new operations, new business models. And I think one of the challenges that gives us is that they have found far more low-hanging fruit than was ever anticipated, and they continue to find them. And it's going to continue to put a downward pressure on the carbon price, which means that we will need to think of new and exciting ways to deal with those other problems for those other sectors where decarbonisation is going to need huge chunks of capital to actually address how we decarbonise some of these sectors and, and keep industry in the EU. So I think... Uh, We've huge success, I think, in changing behaviour, but that's created new challenges as well. Thank you. Benedict, uh, please short. Which we touched, but I wanted to emphasise is, is what I see the problem of overlapping policies. Um, and I, 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 you know, a couple of people pointed out the, the efficiency of lowest cost. Um, but if you have overlapping policies under a cap, if you heavily subsidize renewables and energy efficiency, for instance, then you have very high cost that displaces somewhere else, and there you have low cost and you take away incentive. Um, and, and what we've seen is you penalize early movers. I mean, if you look at uh, CCGT dispatch, gas dispatch in Europe, it's basically idle everywhere. So it's, it's, it's a massive, it's a grave in the millions and billions of, of euros. So I think, um, the, you know, the... the the efficiency of the scheme, there's, there's theory and then there's the real world. Um, and just to illustrate one thing where, where, which um, I often point out to people who ask me, say in terms of real reductions and, and this kind of surplus that we come to, the problem is um, if you say, okay, real reductions, you know, if, the, if, if we measure the EUTS against real reductions happening right now, you wonder who is actually selling right now at seven euros? I mean, who can reduce carbon at seven euros at this stage? Just as a, as a visualization, as a food of thought, is to say if, for instance, tomorrow n n not a single industrial would sell carbon, we would probably we would have to make a reduction, which is probably 25 euros fuel switch, or maybe some refineries can switch something at around 15 euros, but we would definitely be at 15 to 25 euros if there was not a single ton in addition to the auction being sold from bank volume. That also means that between 7 euros and, in this example, 25 euros to the fuel switch, nothing's happening in terms of re-reduction. It's all just eating up the banked surplus between here and 25. Um, and so if you say, okay, is the scheme actually reducing emissions? You know, I think right now we're, we're feeding from a huge layer um, of, of surplus that has been reduced in the past, obviously, but, uh, but at, a, at a big cost. So, so I wonder whether, whether it's... it's you know, if you would really run the numbers, whether it's really the most cost-efficient or it's been the most cost-efficient. Thank you. Since we don't have time, I, I, most questions from outside refer to the third session. I, I will leave them for the third session. And, and now I would ask the, the panel to, to, to give some feedback and quick feedback uh, on, on, on the questions. And then I will ask Jos uh, to comment on everything. Any comments I could make on very interesting points have been made. I'm going to pass on that in the interest of lunch and moving ahead with the agenda and uh, look to the next session to bring many of these up because there is overlap. Well, maybe that's putting pressure on everyone to pass in the interest of lunch. Uh, 
What do you say, guys? <laughs> well, I, I can actually do the same. <laughs> All those in favor say aye. <laughs> same with me, too. <laughs> Not impressed at all. Um, <laughs> so be nice to me. Now I, I would like to take out two points because two people now mentioned CC, etc., which is a technical term for combined heat and power gas turbines, and they're in really bad shape around Europe right now. And I'm not saying ETS did it, but back in the trialogue with Avril Doyle and Cafita, CHP was traded for waste gases in the steel sector. Um, and gas-fired CHP is in big trouble all across Europe right now. I don't think ETS can solve it alone, it's energy market design, but there is something for not getting any credits for the electricity you feed back on the grid. There's a partial solution in demand-side flexibility, where I think the, the inclusion of ETS in the energy union is very wise. There's energy market structure issues which need to help the ETS to function as well. And a second point I'd like to raise is that what we do see as well, which is the combination of renewables and ETS, is the fact that the, especially the UK power sector has a traffic jam of boats full of wood chips coming from the US at the moment. Canada is even sending wood chips to Sweden, um, which is renewable energy subsidies plus um, the current system. And that's not very healthy either. So I think also the, the I don't know if you know it, but the whole UK power sector drags, especially is biomass the solution, which is burning US forest at the moment, to such an extent that the US industry is filing against the EU um, on state aid cases for distortion of their wood markets. That's also an impact which was not really foreseen. Um, and I hope I'm not spoiling your lunch with that one. Um, but it's something, it's not only ETS, it's ETS with state aid guidelines, it's ETS with reform of the renewable system, it's ETS with the energy market design, demand side flexibility, and the position of combined heat and power. Um, so we have a bit of work to do before the summer package. And if I delayed the summer package by this to autumn so I can go on summer holiday, I would be really happy. Thank you. I'll be brief. Um, I, I, I think there's... You know, Peter, you were right, we have adapted as we've gone along, as we've seen the massive surpluses growing, but what we haven't done is to bite the bullet and say we can be afford to have more ambition. I mean, we haven't done that, and we've got to do that. It's not like we've solved climate change or anything. It's not like if we took a more ambitious line, it would somehow upset the international negotiations. It would make those international negotiations better. And if we can find a way of keeping industry happy, which I'm sure we can, we need more ambition in this system. And moving things around and hiding them under the cupboard will work for a certain period, but we have to have more ambition, is my suggestion to fixing it fully. But we'll discuss that, I'm sure, after lunch. Javier, thank you uh, uh, to have the final word uh, in terms of uh, trying to summarize a very, a very useful debate. But I like to do it in five points, uh, not many more. But the first point, I think, that we heard very clear from Danny, this is a multinational experience delivering a single price. Uh, lots of elements are harmonized despite the fact that so many countries are cooperating. But the question that was raised is the governance question. And only through governments we could do it, which begs the question when we are going to link up later. Um, the only experience of governments beyond the EU is the UNFCCC. And we saw on CDM, for example, that the government's uh, model was fairly weak, uh, to put it mildly. So that's uh, one cluster of things. We have what 
uh, we have. And I think when we go beyond that, uh, we will have to deal with a number of uh, tricky questions. Did it work? Second question. I think we all agree that the MRV, the monitoring reporting verification worked, the compliance worked, the cap was delivered, the data collection is excellent, and if I compare that to other environmental legislation, we have a compliance rate of 99.9%. If we look at waste or water or air, we are in many cases not even approaching the 50%. So I think that's uh, from an environmental perspective uh, quite uh, important. The third point is what else worked? Uh, is the price, and uh, do we have confidence on the prices? Well, what I got from the debate is that awareness raising with CEOs was triggered as soon as we had an EDS. It functions as a deterrent for other um, uh, policy mechanisms. It works, works rather on the long term. Um, uh, but on the short term, I think the, the, the messages coming out uh, were not that clear. But I have a, a, a hypothesis I would like to share, and that is, may it not be possible that when we started with the scheme, that CEOs were paying a lot of attention, recruiting engineers, etc. So a lot of low-hanging fruit was taken away very quickly. And that low-hanging fruit is now gone. So that means on the cost curve, the marginal costs of abatements uh, are becoming more visible and, 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 and bite in, and hence the debate on, that we have on carbon leakage and, and where it is kicking in. The fourth element is where I got a bit worried, and I think Franz Josef bring, brought that on the table, should we have a national addition to the European scheme? Uh, that is exactly what went wrong in a lot of European slash environmental legislation. The gold plating triggered a lot of irritation and triggered also the deregulation debate. And that is very lively in the Brussels fabric. So I would be very cautious in trying to put up a national element because that could undermine exactly what Denny was describing as the single price and whatever. Um, now, one comment in this respect, of course, the energy mix is determined by the member states. So what the member states are doing on renewable energy and energy efficiency is national policy. Uh, it's not European policy. But for that, and I would like to draw the attention to that, the market stability reserve has a caveat that is now brought into the emissions trading system that when there are overlapping policies, the price is no longer going to be undermined. So to, just to reply to uh, the question on whether you oversubsidize between inverted commas on renewables, you could depress the price but the surplus is going to function in such a way that the surplus is going to be bigger and is going to be put in the fridge. So the price impact of uh, complementary or overlapping policies is now managed through the market stability reserve, and that is not yet uh, sufficiently uh, understood, I think, by, by many uh, players. And my last comment uh, is the most difficult one on the investment impact. I think that uh, Felix was uh, summarizing it well. We possibly were very successful in avoiding carbon-intensive investment. The question is how much we were triggering clean investment. And I think on that question, we come very close to a world 
where the actors are acting on a global scene, globalization, trade impacts, and, and this may open up an avenue of new questions uh, for the future, but it's certainly something on which more research uh, could be done uh, in the future. In any case, I think that um, uh, we, we see that our companies are excellent in producing uh, investments in low carbon technology. The question is, is the, the leakage factor uh, playing in that uh, these investments are rather happening elsewhere instead of inside the EU? And that's a question uh, which bothers us as policymakers uh, in increasingly. And that's why on, I think it's not by accident that the heads of state have decided not to let phase out the system of carbon leakage, because according to the current legislation, carbon leakage provisions would come to an end by 2025, but they made a decision that on carbon leakage, roughly half of the emissions would continue to be handed over for free to cope with the carbon leakage uh, um, uh, question. So I think that that, that is a good in-between for the, for the phase four on which we uh, should be able to work it out. Thanks very much. I was too long, Javier. We are all very hungry, but uh, looking forward. Uh, thanks to everybody. Sorry for being so late, but uh, we'll uh, go now to lunch. Thanks.